So it might not surprise you as people who work in cybersecurity that every time you develop a website, send an email newsletter, write a report, whatever, you struggle to figure out what image do I put on it to communicate whatever ideas I'm mm-hmm. trying to, to come. And, and it's, it's yes. server racks, it's, it's white dudes in hoodies, it's matrix style ones and zeros. It, it's, in other words, <laughs> crap. Go do a Google image search for cybersecurity and then cue the laugh track. This is the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. We are recording live at the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation headquarters in Palo Alto, California. Uh, I'm your host, George Comedy. I'm Ashley Stone. And today's guest is Eli Sugarman, the program officer for the cyber initiative here at the foundation. Thanks for having us. Thank you for letting me join. Um, well, let's just kick it off. I am super glad to be here because the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation is one of those many foundations that you hear on NPR for the benefit of our listeners who, have had this, who, who may have had the <laughs> same experience, but don't actually know what it is that the, the larger foundation's remit is. Could you, could you speak about that? And then we'll, we'll dial into the, to the cyber side. Sure. No. So oftentimes that is one of the ways that people have heard about us is, is from our sponsorship of NPR that's, that's ongoing. So we are the family foundation of the Hewlett family mm-hmm. of, of Hewlett Packard fame, right? And so each of the families has become um, quite well off and, and has given back quite a bit to society broadly speaking. And so the Hewlett family started this foundation more than 50 years ago, and it's grown to be about the fifth largest foundation in the United States with about $10 billion in assets. And wow. so, wow. yeah, every year we we give away about 5% of that. That's mm-hmm. sort of the way the tax code incentivizes you to, to make sure that you, you keep sort of giving the money away um, to really benefit everybody for a charitable purpose. And so the foundation has several big grant making programs, many of which trace back to the family's philanthropic interests um, going back again several decades. So we're the largest private funder in the world trying to combat climate change, preserve the environment, Mm. do a lot of work on global development, transparency, women's economic empowerment, um, access to healthcare overseas and domestically, education here in the United States, and then also having a robust uh, performing arts ecosystem here in the Bay Area. And so some international, some national, some more regionally focused. And then I lead our grant making on cybersecurity and internet policy, which is one of our, our newer efforts. It's very exciting. So can you define the role and mission of the cyber part that you're working on? Sure. So the cyber initiative um, is really trying to build a more capable and robust cyber policy field. And by that, we mean we really want to see cybersecurity and related issues move from more of an art to a science. And so we think you need to do a few things to build that field of expertise mm-hmm. and institutions where all of those people work to really help society chart a path forward, given how all these digital technologies are spreading and we're using them every day. Um, that's great. But at the same time, we're not really thinking in a really sophisticated way about what the long-term benefits and risks are and, and how to manage those so that the technologies have more of a positive impact as opposed to causing harm. And so... We're not trying to get into a debate saying, I know the right answer to the encryption debate, even though like personally, I have a strong viewpoint institutionally. <laughs> we don't, but, but we think what's really important is to say that, that these are the foundational issues of this age and you really need to prioritize them and have a field of expertise that is recognized as robust and strong and multidisciplinary to really do that hard thinking to solve really thorny problems is you yeah. can't just trade sound bites. Like we're not going to get anywhere with that. Right. And I think you raise the encryption issue, um, and that is one where I feel like it has been reduced to sound bites. Um, and you know, recently the New York Times Daily podcast had had this harrowing uh, reportage on child sexual abuse imagery. Mm-hmm. And you know, one thing that that 
raised for me, which I had not considered as somebody who values uh, encryption tools, was that if that stuff, like the largest proportion that's reported to the National Center for uh, yeah, Missing and Abuse yeah. is on Facebook Messenger. And if Messenger gets encrypted, then it becomes that much harder for Facebook to do the reporting. And so there was a debate on the podcast. Is that like kind of a way out? If they encrypt it, then they can't be said. And then obviously if it's encrypted, you're unable to track down. the. I don't know. It had raised an issue that I don't had not heard mm -hmm. before with respect to that issue. Yeah. I mean, I think the encryption debate's a perfect example of why we think our grant making and others mm -hmm. spending, you know, long-term sort of risk capital, if you will, to, to, to explore these issues is, is critical is because core democratic values that we hold dear are intention, right? We, we all want to be safe. We want our children to be safe. We want the nation to be safe, mm -hmm. right? We want law enforcement to like, I would argue, really do its job well, but at the same time, we care about our privacy and our civil liberties right. and, and not having government encroach too much. But at the same time, we actually want these technologies, right? We want them to make our lives better. We want these companies to grow and to innovate and to hire people because that is sort of the modern economy, right? And so those three general values of sort of privacy, civil liberties, security of different kinds, and, and competitiveness and innovation are intention. And the encryption debate is, is sort of the perfect encapsulation mm -hmm. of that. And so what we really need to be talking about is not whether you know, it's good or bad. It's really what trade-offs are we comfortable with? Right. And that really starts with understanding what are those trade-offs? And most participants in the debate will not acknowledge there actually are trade-offs. And right. so it's really That's hard to then get at, okay, well, let's map the trade-offs and actually measure them. Because while I think law enforcement generally is trying to do the right thing and keep us safe, when you can't actually marshal compelling data to show what the scope of the challenge or threat is that you're talking about, that doesn't really give me confidence that you actually understand it, right? Right. And and so you can talk to the FBI, and if they want to be open with you, they'll acknowledge like they don't actually have good data about how much encryption is stymieing different kinds of investigations because mm -hmm. they're not actually set up to gather that data. And so I think there are multiple layers of the debate, and so too the civil liberties community and certain members of the technical community don't want to acknowledge that actually like you... You do want capable law enforcement who has the ability, I would argue, in many instances to reach in mm -hmm. when there is that third party judicial oversight. And a lot of the reason why we're coming back to these really nasty debates is there's not any trust, right? And so, again, how do you have this like multi-layered, sophisticated conversation about values, trade-offs, and nobody even trusts each other? And it's 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 really, really hard. But I think we're only going to have more conversations and debates like that going forward as these technologies that are less understood and less mainstream than encryption start sort of getting out there and people realizing, oh, what what the heck do we do about X or Y or Z that we don't even know about? And so the encryption one is a really good use case to start exploring what's working right now and what's not and how do we really solve those kinds of problems going forward because there's not going to be a shortage of them. And being a right. adopted at breakneck speed and uh, with a lot of these things being talked about as just mere feature sets rather yep. than yep. like fundamentally altering the way we communicate. Um, you know, we'll, they'll say like, well, I want my Facebook chat to be encrypted, but I'm totally willing to buy a ring camera system where I have not read how the data is being used or whether there's any 2FA. And so when somebody hacked, like it's sure. just sort of like compounding feature sets without understanding the technology. 
Agreed. And right, <laughs> do you want to impose a liability regime so that then you like, you know, literally just slam on the brakes when it comes to that? Probably not. But then mm-hmm. again, like given the state of our political discourse in this country, let alone the global one, having again that nuanced conversation where the answer is in the gray. It's not black or white. Mm-hmm. It's not right. there isn't a binary option set on any of these things. And it's really easy when you're advocating on one side of an issue to reduce it to binary and the other side are bad, we're good. And if we take any step down, it's obviously a slippery slope and God forbid, then the world's going to end and you're like, well, no, not really. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, it's like, I get why you're behaving that way. And, And unfortunately, that is one area where philanthropy, I think, does sometimes drive it because some philanthropies and some funders want to play that aggressive advocacy card and they want to fund the absolutist position to stand Mm -hmm. up against the big corporation or stand up against the big government. And, you know, obviously sometimes that's really important and warranted. Um, But in other instances, I think it's harder to roll up your sleeve work, you know, roll up your sleeves, you know, get in the mix. And it's, it's again, like all that gray area, how do we figure out these trade-offs? And I, I don't, I consciously do not have the answer. I'm not trying to say I do, I do think that starting from the perspective of acknowledging there are trade-offs and that's what we really have to get mm-hmm. at, like just getting there is one it's, thing that we do feel strongly yeah. 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 Or even explaining that there is a problem, how to understand it. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit about your work here, but how did you actually get to the foundation? We understand you started sure. with the State Department. Yeah. So I, I, I think I have a somewhat circuitous route to working on cybersecurity as I think many relatively new people in the field do. And so we have yes. discovered this repeatedly. And so we I, love that. I will totally own this. <laughs> and I, I have not been working on cybersecurity for 20 years, quite consciously the opposite. Um, right. I, out of undergrad, I, I went to the state department as a member of the civil service. Mm-hmm. I was working in the bureau of political military affairs, which at the time reported up to John Bolton, who was then the undersecretary for international security and arms control known by the acronym T. Um, that was an interesting experience given the orga- reorganization that John Bolton led of the department. Um, I'll leave that there. But it was a lot of international security work, work with multilateral organizations, Latin America focused. So very, very international security mm-hmm. heavy, but also with a, a diplomatic and, and sort of international overlay. And those were very much my interests. Then um, thank the State Department for giving me that opportunity for, for five years or so and went to law school thinking that, you know, international law, conflict resolution, arbitration, something in that suite of issues like, you know, it'll, it'll be interesting, right? It's, it's a right. flexible degree. I can stay in DC. I can do policy. I can do law. I can do whatever, right? Um, went down that path and and then um, ended up at a small consulting firm after law school because the legal market had tanked. And I was at a law firm that said, well, we've given you an offer. You've accepted it. But listen, we need to sort of like pull it back a little bit because we don't want to <laughs> yes. we don't want to take on too many people so we'll cut you I had a, deal. a lot of friends go through right. the same thing so, so this was the, the brilliant of it they're like we will give you a sizable sum of money not to come work for us for a year so long as you don't go work for another law firm competitor yeah. and i said sounds good to me sold sold <laughs> so i went to work for a consulting firm um and so this was a small boutique consultancy led by a former bush administration official doing really interesting emerging markets political risk project management a lot which had a technology component right mobile banking wireless spectrum right. and the like around that time met my wife who was in google's policy shop and very quickly realized okay these internet policy issues are only gaining steam they have a robust security dimension this is a really interesting important area i want to get smart on that spend a few years reading, writing, going to events, and then eventually pivoted over and we moved home to California. We're both Californians, started a family and joined the Hewlett Foundation about five years ago. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, so uh, now that you are in this role um, and using 
cyber philanthropy, which I think is a is a, a growing area if, if it can be named as such. Um, what are some of the projects that you've seen come across the line with you know success or have impact against like the landscape that you're trying to to sketch? Yeah, so I think I think the first thing I would say is that we are consciously trying to build a field. And so mm-hmm. what we're not doing is saying we're seed funding a new technology, we're prototyping something that then is some new tool or capability and then measuring the uptake by enterprises to defend themselves, right? Like that's consciously not what we're doing because mm-hmm. we don't have the resources honestly to do that. And like, I am not a technical project manager who's, you know, that is not my skill set nor right. what I've been trained to do. So, so just to be clear that like, that's not what we're measuring ourselves against. But but what we are is I think there are a few good examples, right? I think since we entered this funding landscape five years ago, you've seen a spate of new graduate and, and sort of undergraduate programs at universities ranging from University of Texas to Stanford to MIT to University of Washington, um, Indiana University that say cybersecurity is a societal level challenge. We need people who are cross-disciplinarily trained. So they need the basic understanding of the technology, some law, some policy, some business, social sciences, so they can run teams and, and sort of like be part of that cross-functional team. Because at the end of the day, any complex problem in the world requires a multidisciplinary solution, I would right. argue. Like we're past the days of just like pure technical solutions yes. or pure, yeah. you know, human factors or whatever, social science solutions. Like it, it, it's, it's the intersection, right? Right. And so those degree programs, honestly, like are churning out some really good graduate students who are going to work for DHS. They're going to work for the UN. They're going to work mm-hmm. for companies. They're working for civil society groups, keeping them safe. And so... I think you know there are there are a whole host of those programs like the Citizen Clinic at UC Berkeley that's that's you know yeah. training students to then go you know protect civil society organizations like that is real impact and we can we can link that pretty clearly to our funding and that competition among universities is a really nice thing because nothing gets Harvard or Stanford or Princeton or whomever yes. more riled up than to see their their friendly rival right. raising a lot of money saying oh you know what we better go do the same otherwise like we're going to fall behind. <laughs> whatever that means. And so the competition in that marketplace, I think, is really good. And some of those programs in five years won't exist, but you'll have a really good, strong cohort that are left. So I think that's like one easy thing to point to that we've really helped catalyze that. And did the the idea for the initiative um, come down from the foundation's board because they recognized this is a threat or sure. what, what was, was the origin? impetus? Yeah. yeah. So this, this predates me. Um, so the foundation president, Larry Kramer, um, came in and I think when he came in about seven, eight years ago, re, you know, took a fresh look at all the foundation's grant making, right. As, as you do when you're the new CEO and mm. incoming leader. And we had a modest grant making program on nuclear security, right. Trying to prevent nuclear proliferation that went back to the foundation's interest yeah. in security going back a few decades, you know, conventional conflicts, there've been previous iterations of it. And I think he looked at it and said, this is really noble, important work, but, um, it's not at the dollar level where we're sort of like a key funder in the field. Um, it's valuable, but, but why don't we try to do something a little edgier that's true to our Silicon Valley roots? And so, you know, went on a, I hate this phrase, a listening tour. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, like spoke to a lot of informed, thoughtful people. And this was also just happened to be around the time that Edward Snowden um, popped up into the, pop, you know, popular consciousness discourse, whatever. And I think there was a realization that these internet technology security issues are really gaining a salience and deserve a lot more attention than they've gotten from philanthropy. And there needs to be long-term money focused on researching and thinking them through and that we should really just, you know, place a bet on, on doing that. And so Larry came up with the idea. I think the board helped refine it and, and supported it. And then 
my predecessor helped get it launched. And then I came in a few months after it was blessed by the board. Well, it's interesting. And I, I think this idea of using money to fund the development of the field, the discipline, the thinking, you know, and we have a very recent announcement from uh, Dmitry Alperovich of CrowdStrike that he is also starting a policy accelerator. I, I wonder if we are now seeing enough impact of cybersecurity issues in the real world, election security, et cetera, that it is we have recognized as a society that we must either marry policy with, in other words, we've moved beyond this idea of like just simple technological controls mm -hmm. to deal with these issues. Sure. I hope you're right. I mean, I, I guess a couple, a couple thoughts. I think one is, um, it'll be really interesting to see what Dimitri ends up doing. Um, right. I'm hoping, I, I mean, I'm going to see him tomorrow and catch up and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about a lot of things, but I, I think, I think if, if I understand where he's thinking, I think I'm hoping he'll be a bit of a trailblazer because while there are a lot of folks who have, you know, contributed meaningfully to the growth of the internet economy and ecosystem and built some really big companies and, and kept a lot of people safe. A lot of those high net worth individuals, um, to the extent they are philanthropists, have consciously avoided thinking about or focusing resources on cybersecurity, which is really interesting, mm. right? And so the analogy I like to draw is if you think about sort of um, those who benefited most from industrial from the industrial revolution, right? You immediately think of some of the most well known philanthropists in the United States, the Carnegies of the world, the Rockefellers, you Ford know, Foreshawn, all all those, yeah, forward a bit a bit later on, but but sort of saying that at some point that those individuals, those named individuals and or those around them realized, hey, there's been a major societal disruption here that we have profited wildly from and helped to drive. We need to invest in institutions that help society grapple with all of that mess. We're funding universities and libraries and schools and whatever. A similar thinking and realization has not um, taken hold, I would argue, among the similarly situated class of internet billionaires. There are things like the giving pledge and all these really, you know, worthwhile things, but but it's usually focused a bit more on charity as opposed to strategic philanthropy. And it's consciously not cybersecurity and saying, oh, maybe part of the cesspool that we built, we didn't mean to build it, but we built partially mm -hmm. a cesspool, um, we should sort of own that and like try to help solve some of those problems at scale. I think more of that would be like, would be fantastic. And so I, I think Dimitri, I, I think probably has a bit of that in his thinking where it's sort of, you know, thinking about what he wants to do to leverage his technical insights and, and all of the malicious actors he's been fighting to keep their customers safe. Um, I think more of that kind of philanthropy and engagement is, is welcome. And so I'm, I'm excited to see what he and hopefully others will follow his example. I am also intrigued at the terminology, you know, policy accelerator is sort of a marriage of think tank, but also like sure. incubator sure. vocabulary. And I just thought, yes, that's what we need is acceleration of yeah. policy development rather than kind of a, our typical policy life cycle is so much slower than the technology changes. You know, by the time they come up with some regulation, it's right. already irrelevant. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, like there are several catchphrases that drive me nuts as a funder. Like one is we're not a think tank, we're a do tank. I'm like, <laughs> I would swear on your podcast, but you have to edit it out. But it's like FFS. Like, come on, like, like, come on. Um, 
But I do think I do think there's so much innovation to your point that is that is so badly needed in the nonprofit space. And and again, yeah. like I am the first person to criticize funders for for driving some of the dysfunction within the nonprofit ecosystem. And more of us, we funders, need to take risks and let people break the mold and, and mm-hmm. get out of doing some of the things that we essentially force them to do, which which are, are frankly retrograde. Um, so I think I think there is, a, you know, like you're right, accelerating policy ideas. How do you do applied problem solving with the private sector? The federal government is no longer the lead actor on Indeed. so many of these issues. Right. And the problem is a lot of these blue chip nonprofits that have really good people and, and, and great institutional heritages um, are not they don't know how to engage and add value to a major company that frankly controls a large swath of the internet or traffic or whatever slice of the stack you're looking at. And you sort of do need to re-architect nonprofit institutions to add value and address problems that are largely the domain of the private sector. So, so again, totally agreed. And, and, um, I think you do see some of those neat innovative efforts that have started, whether it's it's sort of what Aspen's doing with their tech policy hub that Betsy Cooper's leading. Um, you've got some great work coming out of, of some other think tanks, but I, I, I do think that more innovation is, is badly needed. Yeah. Great. One of the projects I was really excited about that you've worked on, and I'm staring at stickers sure. that you put down on the table for us, is the use of imagery mm-hmm. uh, in cybersecurity. Can you tell us a little bit about sure. that project and what came from it? Yeah, so this is one of my favorite projects that we've done. Um, and again, one of those things that like only a foundation, I think, would ever like, actually spend money on, even though I think it's, it's actually very important. Um, yes. So it might not surprise you as people who work in cybersecurity that every time you develop a website, send an email newsletter, write a report, whatever, you struggle to figure out what image do I put on it to communicate whatever ideas I'm mm-hmm. trying to, to com- and, and it's, it's yes. server racks, it's, it's white dudes and hoodies, it's matrix style ones and zeros. It, it's, in other words, <laughs> crap. Go do a Google image search for cybersecurity and then cue the laugh track, right? And so several of our partners and grantees brought this problem to us and we said, you know what? You're totally right. We've also experienced this problem. What can we do to solve it? And and so what we thought was, um, we're not cr- creative in the sense of being visual artists or designers, but but we need somebody who can tap that network, combine it with the cybersecurity community, and come up with new usable images. And so we settled on IDEO or I, o, the Open IDEO platform of IDEO, the design mm-hmm. think firm, and said they run global contests. Why don't we hire them to do this? And so basically, what we did was right, design and run a contest to give away $50,000 in prizes to artists around the world who came up with new creative visual depictions of cybersecurity-related terms. Um, we're in the process of building out a microsite so that all those images are available. They're all usable under Creative Commons by anybody. All you have to do is attribute who made the art. You can you can riff off the image. You can take it. You can change it. You can do whatever you want. And the point here is not to say, like, we have figured out all the new images that everybody should use. <laughs> the point here is to show that it's possible. And right. that maybe we gave you something that'll lead you to something else or Maybe you'll just plop it right into your white paper now, but we're trying to create a resource for the field, right? Coming back yes. to like, how does this fit in? Um, one of the things the field struggles with is how do we communicate about and talk about this stuff in a way that everyday people can understand it? Because while I love much of the you know like major outlets reporting on this, like even sometimes New York Times relies on server racks yes and like if the new york times creative department can't do better than that like you know we've got a problem because like they're really really good at their job right and we we'll uh we'll definitely put a a link um in the show notes i remember it's called i I can definitely send it it's the sorry state of cybersecurity imagery uh which we wholeheartedly agree with our own brand manager forbids hoodies it's like the number one rule (laughs) in the company and uh she took the 
Kermit the Frog hoodie meme and has it on the office that says, hey, you want to buy some cybersecurity? Well, so I like that. So just, I mean, the listeners can't see the stickers, but if you want to put a picture of them up, we have a whole line of stickers that say, not all hackers wear hoodies. Yes. And it's, yes. it's different kinds of people. Um, yes. It's a, it's a rather know, in, diverse in theory set. hacking, right. Which which may be a commentary on the, the, the need for more diversity in the field. I don't know. Um, so, but yeah, but a, a, amen to that. Like, um, and there's even been a researcher at UC Berkeley actually did an interesting research showing what colors do do all of the firms and cybersecurity images black and red, red. Well, so, so there's red but there's also a lot of blue and so he has this whole analysis as to why blue is one of the predominant colors and so there's actually like a whole interesting sort of like actual you know analytical scientifically rigorous approach you can take to like analyzing the visual language at the end of the day you you'd still come back to the it's garbage so yeah <laughs> well and i think to your point you know i think that that sounds like a fun activity but it does do the industry a disservice it also does a disservice to the perception of these issues in the in the public mind right yep. i think if you're still thinking of hoodied hackers i mean we have our very own president referencing, you know, some guy weighs 400 pounds in his basement, like that as like a hacking paradigm. It also makes it much easier to hold cybersecurity at a distance. Sure. Right. And I would, I would ask you as you're sitting here and working to build up this field, like what would you communicate to the average American citizen as to the import of these issues? No, I, th I think that's totally right. That's why we focused on it is that you, people right now are sort of, um, we're made to feel helpless, right? Mm -hmm. Because the whole discourse is, is generally one of fear. It's overly securitized and, um, it's not accessible. And so when you read about front page news stories, partially that are written to drive clicks because just, I mean, listen, the media industry is a really hard one and it's hard to begrudge them for, for needing traffic to, to pay people, right. And to, to, to feed them. Um, and so, but these issues do really matter because there is real world harm that comes from this. I mean, beyond people losing their bank accounts and livelihoods and hospitals being bricked and, and all sorts of stuff. Um, so I think what we try to communicate is, listen, like these are really hard, complex issues. Um, but as an individual, like you can actually, you know, make a meaningfully dent, a meaningful dent in protecting yourself. And unfortunately, like you are the only one who's actually out there protecting yourself because law enforcement does not have government doesn't have the capability to protect you online. Like mm -hmm. it just doesn't right. full stop. I wish that weren't the case. And so in contrast to the physical world where, you know, you're still responsible for keeping yourself safe and not doing things that are high risk or going to places you shouldn't. Um, in theory, there's still some government um, person, law enforcement or whatever, responsible for keeping you safe or responding after you have been harmed. Online, like the odds of you and anybody actually coming to help you even after you've been defrauded are pretty low if you just look at cybercrime statistics. Indeed. I mean, yep. the, the amount of money that you have to lose for, say, the FBI to get out of bed to help you is like more than 10x what it would be if like your little savings and loan were physically knocked off by like the bank robbing crew from like point break or something right like <laughs> and, and it just goes to show and again like i i'm not trying to criticize law enforcement i'm just saying that like the whole paradigm is not set up for yes, it's, yes. it's poorly like, equipped it's poorly equipped it's poorly structured we have to fundamentally rethink like what is the role of government actually that we want like right. what is the role of the company and what is the role of the individual and all three of those are slightly different than what they have been heretofore and like that's really hard to acknowledge and stomach. And then how do we translate that then into organizing principles? And I think we're not even remotely there as a country. And even when, you know, you know I say we work for a cybersecurity company, 
family, friends, whoever, neighbors tend to say like, oh, so like elections or like, you know, mm-hmm. I think it's a, always a geopolitical issue, at, sure. at, at least at present. And I'm like, well, actually, sometimes it's just like a mom and pop retailer on Shopify that gets their their Instagram account taken over and then somebody fishes all their customers and right. essentially like run out sure. of business or yeah. you like they're ransomed yeah. for something as small as $5,000, yeah. which when you have yeah. very low margins it's is all like business email yeah. compromise. And, right. and yeah. it's stuff yeah. that like, you know, you make a little bit of money from and you do it enough times and then you're filthy rich, right? Because right. you can do it from right. distance and nobody catches you and it's easier to be anonymous online most of the time. And so, yeah. And, and also becoming a um, legitimate revenue source for organized crime. Totally. Right. Yeah. right. right. And, just, and organized yeah. crime linked to states like North Korea, like whether mm-hmm. it's like, you know, Bitcoin mining or whatever. Like, no, no, there are all sorts of ways to sort of monetize um, that scale really rapidly. So, yeah, no, no, it's, it's a great, it's business is booming, right, for the bad guys. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Which is why there are so many companies, like many of whom are doing good value-added work and, and many of whom are offering products and services that really don't add much value but it's rsa week yay (laughs) (laughs) that's the plug people um well let's turn uh our attention back to uh your projects at the state department because i think that's it's interesting that you came from international security uh and then into you know digital security so-called um could you tell us a little bit about your work in iraq and afghanistan with the the legal projects there sure so um so state department preceded the 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 legal stuff the the legal stuff was more through stanford law school where Mm -hmm. um the law school basically you know had a partnership with the american university of afghanistan in kabul and and the american university of of iraq in um, erbil in iraqi kurdistan up north and the idea was that there are you know law students and faculty in both locations and that they could learn a lot from each other and both countries, Afghanistan and Iraq, had relatively young constitutions. And and one of the things you need to really function as a democracy, if those countries were to function as democracies, was was you need some lawyers, right? Who who are sort of like trained up in the new constitutional order and and can bring some of those principles to life. And and so it was really entrepreneurial rule of law work, trying to work with those partner universities to in a way that was culturally respectful and appropriate to build out legal programs to educate a new generation of Afghan lawyers to practice in Afghanistan under the laws of Afghanistan. Iraq then followed as, as sort of a, you know, a follow-on, slightly um, less, you know, less broad, ambitious version of the, of the Afghan program. And so something that we initially, the, the first actual grant in support of that was from the William Flora Hewlett Foundation from... Uh, shout out. <laughs> shout out. Um, holler. Um when I was a student at Stanford before coming to work here, given our longstanding incestuous relationship with Stanford, um, just, just, um, <laughs> we love Stanford, but we are sitting on Stanford property. That's we, right. We yes. built the building, we own it, we lease it from them. The Stanford provost house is contiguous with our property. The Stanford provost versus drill, um, who's amazing sits on our board. So you can see there's a longstanding <laughs> relationship there. Um, and so it was just really neat to sort of, you know, and then we brought in, you know, private sector contributions, funding from the state department, predominantly, this is really the state department was, was the heart and soul of the funding over time, you know, in Afghanistan, there's now a degree granting program that really is, is, you know, educating and graduating new lawyers who are working throughout the Afghan government and, and the private sector and for their national community there. Um, and so it's, it's really exciting to see how that program grew and was for me as a student, an amazing opportunity leveraged from my state department experience for faculty, a great opportunity to learn from other faculty and yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I have any other questions. That's it from us. Yes. Well, thank you very much for hosting us here in your 
Star Wars decorated office. Um, and thank you again for your work here. We look forward to hearing more and we will definitely provide uh, links in the show notes to, to the programs that have um, a lot of impact and especially to these um, cute hacker stickers. As Wonderful. Well, well th- thanks again for, for coming over and giving me the, the chance to chat with you today and, I think hopefully you won't have to sit in too much traffic heading back up to, to San Francisco, even though it is 73 degrees and sunny. So worst case, you'll sit in traffic with some beautiful That's sunshine. Right. Yes. Lovely San Fran. We love it. Thanks right. for joining. Thank you. Well, thank you for tuning in. If you like what you've heard, give us a rating, give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, in the meantime, we give our thanks to Abby Bruce as ever for sound design and production. Matias Cephalidi for our theme music. And until next time, stay safe. This is the Safeguard Zero Hour signing off.